All right, last week we looked at um, this emphasis that was urged upon the God's people in this town in modern-day Greece called Thessalonica. And um, uh, this, this emphasis was urged upon them to excel even more. Paul wrote that twice, just like that, and one other time very similar to that where he said, increase and overflow in the love of God. And he spoke that to them, excel even more in regard to loving one another and uh, living a life that pleases God. He said, excel even more in that. Because he said, you're doing it, but excel even more. And last week we talked about how there's, even if we say we're trying or we've had, you know, experiences of really uh, knowing God, of encountering God, good things like that, there's more. Amen? There's always more. There's, there's more with him. He's inexhaustible. And the relationship with him just... Uh, we, we'll never reach a place that, oh, everything from here is the same. No, there's more. So let's reach for more. Amen? Can we do that? Can we start there? To excel even more. Okay, smile at me, everybody. And tell somebody else, excel even more. At loving at loving what? At loving one another. At, at loving the church. And excel even more at pleasing God. Amen? Okay, let's read. Uh, I'm going to start here. I'm going to go back and just cover part of that um, because of how it ties in. First um, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. It says, Now as to the love of the brethren, and that brethren means the family. It's not really just masculine. Now as to the love of the people of God, the brothers and sisters, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brothers and sisters who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to excel still more. Now notice, it actually doesn't, there's not a period there. There's a comma. The thought continues. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any, de- in any need. He says, God has taught you the necessity and the rightness of loving one another and you're already doing it. You know it innately. Since you've got the Spirit of God in you, the Spirit of God is telling you, is, has already taught you that it's good and necessary and right to love the other believers. Amen? It's there. It's just the Holy Spirit will do it. It says in Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. The, the love of God is poured out. It's like it's, it would be unnatural to not be impacted to have a desire to love people once the Spirit of God has come into us. We would have to be resisting Him. So he says, the, the Lord has already taught you this. He's made it known. And you're already doing it. And then he says, but we urge you to excel even more. But look, it continues on, verse 11, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Hmm. He's saying that a couple important things 
emerge from their dedication and their, their rigorous drive to excel in love and pleasing God. A couple of things emerge. He says, we, when we do, we'll contribute to the community rather than just consume. I want to be a contributor, not just a consumer. Amen? If there was ever a consumer generation, we in the West are it. But we can be countercultural. In fact, we have to be. And he's saying here, Paul's saying to these people, and it's apparently because, because they were new believers and he had preached that Christ was coming back. And they preached it as something kind of imminent. Uh, it's it's going to happen. And it won't be long. And so the, apparently, some of the believers, what they thought was, well, we don't want to be distracted and miss Jesus when he comes. Like, you won't miss him. Uh, <laughs> he will be seen by all. They, you won't miss him. But apparently, some thought, okay, well, my job, I may as well blow that off because I'm just going to wait for, I'm just going to w- wait for Jesus. Why would I need to do this? It could be, why am I, you know, as, as the expression goes, why am I busting my hump to get that done when he's coming back and I won't even need that anyway? So then what happened as there's still, okay, what is the timeline? We're, we're waiting for him to come back immediately and it's, not happening immediately, what are they now doing? They were consuming and basically draining the resources of other brothers and sisters. They were living off of them. And God's people, by nature, just like love is in there, generosity begins to stir as soon as we come to Christ. It's in there. And living off the good graces of the people of God, they started to drain, they started to take, started to just consume. And so that's why it says uh, in, this, in this verse, make it your ambition, which is an interesting word to use with quiet life, but make it your ambition, your aim, your drive to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we instructed you or commanded you. So that, here's the other part of this, it's not just that they're going to now contribute to the body and keep working and not be a drain on the body. The second part of this is evangelistic. He says, go, uh, go quietly about your work so that outsiders, those who haven't yet believed in Christ, can see your proper conduct. They can see your commendable lifestyle and say, wow, that person lives a commendable life. That person lives an upright life. They're not just leeching off of others. They're, they're actually contributing to the, for the benefit of other people. And it, they'll see that, and it says in the NIV, it says, this will win their respect. It'll win the respect of outsiders. How many know that we as believers are being watched by the world all the time? They, they might ridicule, they might say, ah, psh, you believe that fairy tale? But they're watching. They're watching all the time to see, are we genuine are we authentic or are we hypocrites are we are we the the genuine article or are we a fake and so paul says he even says so that this is you do this in order that something will take place regarding outsiders watching it'll attract other people to christ okay first thessalonians 4 13 to 18 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep um, in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep, in this case, means those who've died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain together... Um, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, Pastor Kevin Kavanaugh was with us uh, a little over a month ago. Uh, He spoke on this passage. Um, He knew we were doing a series on Thessalonians, and he said, John, would you like me to do this section. It's like, sure, please. And it was a great message. I encourage you, if you didn't hear it, uh, you can go to the website and listen to that. Or even if you did hear it, go and listen to it again. It was encouraging. It was solid stuff, the way uh, Pastor Kevin laid that out. But I want to touch on this briefly because of how it ties to chapter 5, where we're going. I feel like if I just skip it, we're kind of leaving the context. In this passage, Paul is undertaking he's trying to explain something about the point of transition from the world as it is to the new world when Christ returns he's trying to explain and he's trying to comfort the believers about the safekeeping and the the salvation the security of the salvation of the believers who died again one of the results of thinking Jesus is coming back soon. Some were worried that some of the disciples died before they saw it. And they had a concern that maybe, having died, their, their standing before God was somehow compromised. And that the, the people who died. And that it wasn't going to be as glorious. So here's Paul basically speaking to the body, saying, no, there's one common glorious destiny for the believers the ones who are alive when he comes and the ones who've already passed away there's one glorious destiny for all Uh, author tom wright an english um, author pastor he he used this illustration regarding this passage because of the language that's used here if you had to explain color to someone who was born blind, you'd be faced with the difficulty of trying to compare color to something else that they can, that, that a person born blind who'd never seen color, you'd, you'd be trying to find a way, some language, some kind of an image that would bridge that gap, that would help to, them to understand the what color is and what the difference of colors are. So as Tom Wright said, you might describe red using, or or colors, you might describe it using sound or touch, something that, you know, a, a person who's never seen might be able to still, they could process it through that. And he says, 
You might say that red is like my sister's Christmas sweater here that I love. You, you might say it's a loud color, that it's sharp, right? You might say that about red. Whereas the color of the sky, you might say it's softer, it's gentler, right? That would sort of, you know, it's not as maybe jarring in that way. And, you, and maybe it could kind of help get the point across, right? But only partially. It doesn't really say it. It, it you know, it, it gives a, a bit of a, oh, so there's a contrast, and okay, I know what a loud, shrill sound is, and I know what a soft, gentle sound is, and the difference between red and sky blue might be kind of like that. But they really still have only an image. Well, the language that's used in this little passage about what's taking place is like Paul doing that. He's using language about something that we haven't got a really a frame of reference for. In fact, he's creating a frame of reference, but we would be... Um, it, it would be an error for us to hold that too... Uh, strictly, or to hold that like, oh, that's how it's got to be. This, this, the way this is described here, in fact, Paul himself, in every other place that he describes the return of the Lord, he calls it Jesus appearing. He speaks differently about it than he does here. And that's not to say that the way he's doing it here doesn't have a solid place. But we we would be in error if we take everything about this with a, perhaps with a, an absolute literal view, that it's got to be that way, okay? So he, he presents this. The way that this is going to play out, the return of Christ, the way it'll play out is probably going to surprise us somewhat, Right? Just like Jesus' first coming surprised the people around there. It was there in prophecy, but it looked different when there. It's kind of like you have an aerial view of things, but then when you're down in the midst of it, you know, you look at a forest, an aerial view, and you see it a certain way. When you're down in it, boy, a whole different story, right? And so here's Paul saying this is, he's, he's describing it, but it's not really a fully literal picture of what's going to take place. And there are many believers who would consider this sort of their main hope. And they use this term, the rapture. Okay? I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, tr- just, you know, throw out that whole idea, that whole concept of the rapture. But some have established the rapture as the main certain um, hope of the Christian faith where people will suddenly be snatched out of homes and out of cars and out of planes and out of jobs and these kinds of things and they'll fly off into the sky while the dead are coming out of the grave and meeting them in the air. Now, I don't mean... That sounds sort of funny when you word it like that. If that's how it goes down, so be it. 
But this view of this passage is sort of the same as a blind person hearing that color is sort of like sound. Paul's primary point here seems to be that he's saying the believers that are alive and the believers that are dead have one common destiny with God. They're going to be united with him forever. And he's using this language to say how it's going to... to give some idea of how this is going to go down. But let me say this. What is certain is that Jesus is coming back. The rapture? I've got doubts about that. And there are many theologians that have doubts about that term and how it's been presented in much of uh, in the church in much of these modern times. There are many who say, hmm, this thing is on shaky ground in the way that it's been understood. But what is certain is Christ's return. That we can be absolutely certain of. And when he comes, every wrong will be made right. All injustice will be gone. He will, he will reign absolutely. No, all rebellion will be done away with. And we will be with him forever, as this says. This, Paul says, ought to be a great comfort for us. Even if, you know, all of the things with the rapture, pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, there's some discomfort even with that. What is a comfort is that he's coming back. He said, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. He's coming back. Amen? He's coming back for his people. That should be a comfort for us. A comfort like no other. Paul says, comfort one another with these words should be a comfort to us. We should use it to comfort others. Now, we move on to 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's read the first three verses. Now, as and, and this is a continued thought, these chapter breaks, just so you know. The chapter breaks in your Bible weren't put there by Paul, right? You know that. It just like the chapter breaks in the Gospels, Jesus didn't, in the middle of his teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, okay, next chapter. And he went on to chapter 6 instead of chapter 5. No, somebody else put that in there. And in some cases, if you're like me, you're reading and you get to the end of a chapter and there's a a tendency to think of something new beginning, a new thought. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the thought's carried over. Often it is. In this case, it is. Um, he, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-3. Now, as to the times and the epochs, or dates, brothers and sisters, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now that is not comforting right there. That's not comforting for those who haven't believed. For those that have believed, that means all injustice will be done away with. But for those that haven't, it'll come suddenly and terrifyingly. And he says, destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we don't need to write you because you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
this whole idea, even Jesus said he didn't know the day or the hour, only the Father. So if you meet someone who says they know the time, they know the date, that kind of thing, you should dismiss them immediately as someone deceived, as a false prophet. If you ever hear me say, I know the date, I give you permission now to leave. Walk out and take me with you because I don't, <laughs> I don't want to believe that either. Okay? Um, there's, Jesus said he didn't know, so it is blasphemous really for someone to say. When I was going into campus ministry many years ago, in the late 80s, and I was in Edmonton and I was raising support to do this ministry at UBC and I met with a guy who was the leader of a, a, this ministry in West Edmonton. And I met with him and he started telling me <laughs> that, you know, Jesus is coming back this fall. And it was, it was sort of, um, he, you know, he, he didn't say, you know, September 20th or something like that, but it was a, a narrow enough window that, uh, you know, inside me, uh, you know, warning, warning, warning. There's, there's, you know, those flashing yellow lights and oh, something. It's like, you know, baloney alert, baloney alert. Something's not right here. And this guy was much older than me, so I was trying to be respectful. He, you know, had been in ministry, but even in my that time, maybe been a believer for five years or six years, I knew enough from the Bible that Jesus said he didn't know. So this, this businessman in West Edmonton, it's, it's like, so wait, let me get this straight. So the father said, okay, Jesus, cover yours for a second. I got to talk to Bob down there. You know, it's like, no way. If you know, if you hear that, somebody knows the day and the hour. So Paul says, we don't need to talk to you about that because you already know. Nobody knows the exact time on this thing. You know that that day is going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to know exactly. However, we're living ever ready. Ever ready to go. We're always ready. And so he pushes this. Paul is saying this. When the worldly people say peace and safety, destruction is going to come. And he, others who would say, I'm just going to be ready. I'm going to be ready for him if he comes in the first watch of the night, in the second, in the third, if he comes at noon, whatever, I'm going to be ready. It's enough to know, as Jesus said, the signs. He said to be alert for this, these signs, the signs of the times, to know that it's approaching. Every chapter of this brief letter, every chapter of it, ends with a reference to Christ's return. He's emphasizing it. He's, he's pushing them to be vigilant, to be watchful, to be alert. And now we'll see in a moment, he uses even the term alert. Everything is pointing to this crowning event in the history of the universe. You know, it's, it's fun to imagine being present during Jesus' earthly life, right? Have you ever done it? Right. 
Uh, me too. I, to think of being somewhere where he did the kinds of things that he did, Jesus speaking the word like no one before or after ever, Jesus laying hands on people and miraculously, you know, this guy with dried eye sockets and says Jesus spits, makes mud, puts it on the guy's eyes, go wash, he comes back, he can see. This, I mean, this is incredible. All of these things, 10 lepers, Jesus, have mercy on us. You know, go show yourselves to the priest, meaning go offer the sacrifice that shows you've been restored. And 10 people at a distance. One time he lays hands on, this time he just calls it out. Another time the centurion says, my servant, and he says, you know, just say the word. Okay, he says the word, and the guy's healed. Different ways he does it all the time. Who wouldn't want to be around that, see that kind of play out? I, I know it would look a little different again than the way it is in my head, but I would like to be there. Who wouldn't want to see that? Jesus appearing to his disciples after they had seen his body go into the tomb. And a few days later, he's there, alive. Wow, that's some glory. But wait a minute. We may be the generation that witnesses Jesus return to earth. And Hebrews 9.28 says he's coming back, and this time It won't be in reference to sin. He's coming back in the fullness of his glory. It says with the holy angels. Wow. If we get to be that generation. Oh, and even if we don't, it says he's bringing his saints with him. Those who were all had already died ahead. They're coming back with him. If we get to witness that. That that coming of Christ even the glory of his first coming will seem sort of muted by comparison when he comes in the fullness of his glory and everyone will see him at the same time. That, that's, that's some glory. That's something incredible. The doubts and fears and insecurities about trusting him that we sort of live with uh, in this relatively godless age and culture. The ridicule, the contempt, the dismissive, insolent pride of those who are convinced that you believe a fairy tale and that the book you put your trust in is full of falsehoods and contradictions. All of that stuff, when Jesus shows up, that will utterly incinerate. That will utterly vaporize in a second in the really in the blazing majesty of his holiness and glory it's it's going to be something that truly the crowning event of the universe i have to wonder if for the first hundred years of heaven (laughs) I'm going to be on my face laughing that I ever doubted him. Thinking, when we see him, it's going to be like, Matthew, why did we ever doubt? Look at him. And we're going to laugh ourselves silly. Look at him. He's glorious. How did we ever doubt him? The suddenness of his appearing, though, will be a shock 
to those in rebellion to him. At the same time, they will go, there he is. The truth that we've been clinging to, there is the glory of it, the, the, the full evidence of it. But those who are in rebellion to him, it'll be a dreadful, truly dreadful shock. And then there will be no time to turn and trust him and be reconciled. What will be an absolute relief to followers of Christ will be an absolute terror to those who've said no. No, I, re- I reject your sovereignty, your rule over my life. It says in the book of Revelation that they'll even hide in the hills and in the mountains and tell the mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of him. That's how much glory will be there. Okay. Verses 4 to 11. Uh, let's, uh, yeah, let's read that whole thing. Let me just read verse 3 so that the weight of this comes through. While they were, are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon, birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons and daughters, children of light and children of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, that is, alive or dead, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Okay. When you find that phrase in the Bible, but God, it'll say something happened like this, and then it says, but God. It's like, oh, this, this is going to get good. It's like in sports, there's this, uh, you've heard of an interception, even if you're not a sports fan. An interception is one of the most exciting things that happens in sports. Momentum's all going this way. Say we're playing football, the ball gets thrown and it gets intercepted. All the momentum's going this way, it gets intercepted, and all of a sudden everything's going back the other way, and it's just it's a jarring thing and it's exciting. It's it's very exciting. And what happens in the Bible, it'll say things like, Not many of you were noble, not many of you were wise, you weren't strong. But God chose the small things of the world to confound the wise. Uh, sorry, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the small things to confound the great. He does that, but God, everything's going this way, and all of a sudden the momentum's going another way. God steps in and it changes. But in this passage, it's but you. He speaks of something that's terif- terrifying and terrible. Uh, they won't, ha- destruction is going to come suddenly. And then he says, 
But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. Ah, so it's going to come like a thief in the night. But those of us who believe in Christ, those of us who put our trust in him, it's not going to take us. It, It may be surprising how it plays out, but it will be ready. We'll be ready. Oh, he's coming back. This is it. This is the moment. And we're ready to to yield to him, just like we are even now. So this whole thing of momentum, but you, brothers and sisters, this you're not in darkness. You're aware. You're tuned into the light here. You've got something. Paul has been describing the unfavorable outcome of those in rebellion to Christ. But then he says, your outcome is altogether different because you are not in darkness about what's coming. You won't be taken by surprise because you're alert and you're sober. That's a funny word. Alert and sober. It means you're clear-headed. You're not impaired. You're clear-headed. You're alert. You're watching and you're clear thinking about things. All through this section, there's a contrast between darkness and light, between night and day, being asleep or awake. And he says, being drunk or sober, clear-headed or impaired. The point being, seeing clearly in the light or day versus ignorance or being in the dark. We use uh, figures of speech like, Oh, they're still in the dark about that. Oh, somebody's in the dark. Oh, oh, I was in the dark until this happened. Or the other side of that, oh, I see the light. I I see it. What does that mean? It means I understand now. Like, you know, even in illustrations, you know, they use the light bulb thing. It's like, oh, the light came on. What happens? Things got illuminated. I see what's taken place. These kind of terms, the dark... The light, it has to do with seeing, with revelation, with understanding, with truth. Living in the dark, don't know the truth. Living in the light, you see what's there. And then he uses the same thing with sleep. Really, sleep versus alertness. It doesn't have to do so much with, you know, the reality of needing rest to sleep, but rather a willingness to face reality. When I was a little kid... Uh, we, there was a house down the street and they had a garage that nobody ever went in and, uh, or not, they went in it more than we thought, but a buddy and I went in there and there was a lot of glass. (laughs) Okay. And we went in there, there was a lot of glass and a lot of bricks. And I know I was probably too righteous to do anything but my buddy talked me into doing something bad we went in there and we threw bricks through the glass it was fun then found out that uh uh-oh they called the cops and you know i i think i was maybe about five and i went home because my parents believed in the rod. <laughs> they, they weren't like nowadays. Oh, you can't spank a kid. Somehow, my parents never got that memo. And they did believe in spanking. <laughs> I went home, and I went to sleep. I, I had to check out. I was afraid of reality. And it's like, I just thought, 
you know, I'm four or five. I'm unusually cute, as you could imagine. They're not going to wake me up to beat me. <laughs> so I went home and I slept. And I, I did conk out. And my mom said the cop came in. He came to our house. They actually sent someone there. And he, he looked, he said, that's the culprit <laughs> sleeping on the bed. You know, one eye open. <laughs> no, I really was asleep. And he, I don't know what he said to my mom. And, you know, my parents, you know, I got in trouble with them. You just don't go do that kind of thing. And I appreciate it. But I went to sleep to escape reality. That's partly what he's talking about here. They sleep. They're, they're going to sleep on purpose. Escape reality. I can't face that reality of being accountable to, to, to a holy God. I can't face that. I'm just not going to face it. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going wa- to go through life asleep to the reality that's there. I'm in the dark, maybe ignorant, but what I do know, I don't want to face it. I'm going to sleep. And Paul says, be alert. Be clear-headed. Don't you shut out reality. You face it. You need to intentionally, and then he uses the term, you know, people who are asleep, they sleep at night. People who get drunk, get drunk at night. What does he mean? He means people intentionally impairing their ability to see and cope. It's like, or, or even worse, to just escape reality. I can't face reality, and honestly, on a very natural level, why do a lot of people in our culture, why do they self-medicate with drugs? And with in many cases, there's pain. There's garbage. There's bad things that took place, and it's like I can't face it. And so I'll, you know, I'll drink myself into this place of... of uh, well, it isn't really happiness, but it's somehow dulling the, the pain. People are doing that, intentionally impairing their ability to, to cope with, to take in reality. Paul says, not you. He says, that's not those who believe. He says, those who believe are children of light, children of day. Of the truth. They're alert. They're clear headed. They're in control of their faculties. Verse 8 says, Since we are of the day, put on the breastplate of faith and love and the hope of salvation as a helmet. He says, Clothe yourselves. And that language is in the New Testament in at least three or four places. Put on Christ, he says. Put on the full armor of God. Well, here, that's in Ephesians 6. Here, he just says, clothe yourselves with these two primary pieces of armor, covering your heart and your head. Faith and love covering your heart, your head, covered with the hope of salvation. I encourage you, even this week, spend some time meditating on the details of those pieces of armor. And why did he say that? He'll tell you about it. God will speak to you about it. But let's just read this last part and close. For God has not, verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. 
the jarring monumental reality of Christ's return is not something that we need to fear or avoid. There's, the, you know, the fear of the unknown. How's it going to play out? You know, but that's a tempered fear, not the fear of what it actually means for us. Don't avoid it. The exact opposite, he says, because God has not destined us for wrath. He just says it plainly. God has not destined us for wrath, thank God. He has destined us to obtain salvation through Jesus. He's, uh, he's destined us to receive salvation. And whether we're alive when he returns or not, we will live together with him forever. Somebody say amen. We're going to live with him forever. Paul says, he writes, um, as if to say, in case there's any doubt on this, encourage one another. Build one another up on this. Reinforce it. Tell people this. Speak it over and over. That this wonderful expectation and reality that we're going to experience We're on the favorable side of it. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to avoid it. Nothing can comfort and encourage and recharge us like the reassuring truth of having a favorable outcome with the one who created heaven and earth when he shows up, when he comes. His return is favorable if we've believed in Christ. It's favorable if we believed in him. Keep that reality before you. Stay alert in it and encourage one another in it. Encourage one another. Just, hey, let's keep going like we talked last week. Walk in a manner pleasing to God. One step in front of the other. One foot in front of the other. I'm going to keep going. Oh, I stumbled. No, I'm back up. I'm going to keep going. And encouraging others to do the same. He's coming back. And when he does, it's going to be good.